This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week, I have two guests, both of whom have already laughed at me more than I feel comfortable with. Uh, Carter Monier, an Ignatz award-winning cartoonist living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hello. Hi. She lives with her spouse, her best friend, Carolyn, and a risograph machine. I realized as I read that it kind of looks like those are three ways of describing the same thing. But Oh, yeah, absolutely. My, my beautiful risograph machine spouse, Carolyn. <laughs> the other person with me in the studio today is Grace Lavery, a longstanding guest on the show. Um, and hi, Grace. Hello, Daniel. <laughs> I'm so glad you're both here. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks. I Yeah. Why are you describing me as a long-standing guest in the show? Because like the that's... last time you were on the show, I called you my lover. Yeah. And I still feel uncomfortable we about it. We can raise it. the stakes from that. But now you're doing a lover voice at me. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Carta, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad I'm here. I am not your lover. Mm-mm. You are my friend and a risograph machine. I love you, though. That's. Aww. Oh, I love you, too. This is so... I'm so happy about this. I wish it was just always the three of us Yeah, um, telling everyone. I'm sure you can arrange that, Danny. <laughs> Frankly, you know what? Yes, I think I can. I think it's time I started making more diman- dem- demands. Diamonds. <laughs> Combination of diamonds and demands. <laughs> make more diamonds. Um, yeah, Superman squeezing coal says, I think it's about time I started to make more diamonds. <laughs> Carter, will you please read the first letter? I would love to. Thank you. Um, the first letter reads, subject, which name is, quote, mine? Dear Prudence, I am a woman engaged to the perfect man. I'm also published and recognized in my field by my maiden name. I made the decision to keep my maiden name after marriage for this reason. My fiancé would like me to take his name, but understands my reasons and is supportive of my decision. The problem is my father. He became unexpectedly livid over this. He said a woman needs to take her husband's name to represent unity with her husband and their children. He told me that the last name I have used all my life is his name, and I have no right to keep it against his wishes. I am devastated. I feel suddenly abandoned by my father. What do I do? Change my name to make my fiancé happy and keep the peace? Or fight to keep a name no one else really wants me to have? I hate him yeah no kidding there's something that's just got to feel especially painful about fighting to hang on to a name when it now is associated with a grown man throwing a hissy fit um that would just feel really sad it would just feel like god i i I kind of want the name out of principle now but i really don't want to share a name with you yeah you asshole Yeah, no kidding what an asshole yeah your dad is being a massive asshole so I, i i think you know at least the, the part about being devastated and feeling abandoned by your father makes a lot of sense. And I don't I'm think just there's really any sorry. other way that I would feel under these circumstances. I think it's a perfectly reasonable response to this absolutely infantile man. Frankly, take his whole name such that he has nothing left. Like he <laughs> Steal should, it from him. Yeah, he should be able to, like, he should be walking around with no name. Yeah. 
Or, like, give him the most feminine name that you can think of and make him sort of introduce himself that way. Yeah. See if you can, I don't know, force femme your dad. I was waiting for that to show up in this episode, and I'm so glad we got it out of the way right yeah. away. Yes, force femme your dad. Yeah. That's okay. Advice yeah, for that's everyone. great advice from the Dear Prudence podcast, mm-hmm. force femme your dad. Carta, do you and your spouse have any shared names between the two of you? We do not. Um, we both made the decision to keep our names. And then obviously I changed mine legally. Um, So our names have been kind of all over the place, but like this question is absurd. Like, yeah. Do you feel unity with your spouse? No, 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 never. We've been fighting like, like cats and dogs since the day we were married specifically over this name issue mm. because how could a happy marriage maybe that's too sarcastic i don't know no, um I... no it's it's absurd like um i can't imagine that making a difference to anybody yeah and i can't i i, I just can't imagine why on earth your father feels like like it livid like the idea of that making a person livid is just it's hard for me to imagine how this affects him how this could harm him um, why he is choosing now to, like, pop a zit of his shitty feelings all over you. Mm. Sorry, mm-hmm. that's like a gross image, but that's just what came this up. This isn't how patriarchy is supposed to work. Yeah. You know, I, I understand <laughs> that the sort of the, the, the purpose of the marriage contract is to exchange women from a father to a husband, and that that's kind of messed up in any number of ways. But it's not supposed to be that the father is sort of flinging the name out of the arrangement somehow. I mean, it, it, it seems just just to say the obvious thing. Um, your name is not this man's property. He has no right to your name whatsoever. Um, you keep whatever name you want. Yeah, absolutely. So, if the question now becomes sort of like, I don't really want to share a name with him because of the way that he's behaved, I think that's super fair. Um, I also think if you can see a way towards thinking this is my name, it, it, he did not invent it. He did not you know, create it when he was born. He didn't suddenly think like, ah, a last name that I will create out of the air and give to my children. Like he inherited that from somebody too. Um, if you can see your way to doing that, I, I think absolutely hold firm. Say like, dad, I'm really embarrassed that you're behaving like this and I'm just not going to have more conversations about it. It's fine. If you feel like I'd like to like adopt a new name. Um, or or come up with something new with my fiance, um, so that you neither are capitulating to this sort of like combination of gentle pressure and my my fear is that because your dad is being so bonkers, the like low key pressure from your fiance of like it'd be really nice if you took my name um, will start to seem super like easy and reasonable and like well I'll just do that um, and because that's not what mm-hmm. you want, I don't think that that's what you should do. I agree. Um, and, and something you just said, Danny, reminded me of another option here. If you can't force femme your dad, maybe blackmail your granddad. <laughs> There's so many good options here. Can you say more? Yeah. You know, so it, it, if it's, if it, if it, as you say, it's not uh, the father's property, but something that he has inherited from his father, presumably. Yeah. Um, then according to, uh, according to the rules that your father right, has set up. Right, the oldest man if, who yeah, has the you, name. If you could get your grandfather somehow to, to dispossess his son of the name, then it could sort of fall to you through a kind of primogeniture. Yeah, but I, I think that the thing that really gets me about this is just that last line, last line, do I fight to keep a name no one else really wants me to have? And I think there's something really important about, like, this is your name. It's important to you. Um, the men in your life uh, 
are, for various reasons, being childish and petulant about the choices you make around your name. Um, and so I think just to ask, like, what are my reasons for wanting to keep this name? Um, what do I want? Um, not what does my fiance want? Not what does my dad want? What do I want? You know, um, and, and to just kind of sit in that and just to say, like, that's me. That's my desire. That's my name. I have the right to do that. I deserve to do that. Uh, and to really let yourself do the thing that feels right to you. Um, and it sounds Absolutely. like, you know, it's a name that has like professional meaning to you. You've, you've worked under it. It means a lot to you. It is not simply the name of your maidenhood or the name that your father bequeathed to you and then also has the right to take away. It's your name. And um, I think you should fight for it. You don't have to fight. Frankly, you don't have to fight for it. All you have to do is say like, dad, this is embarrassing and you're being whiny about something that does not affect you. I'm hanging up now. I hope that later when you come to your senses, um, you can apologize and we can talk again like adults. But that's all you got to do. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, like, if you're engaged to someone you're describing as the perfect man, you would think that he would be on your side in this situation. Yeah, even if he had had a mild preference before for your taking his name, once he had seen this from your dad, hopefully his response would be, Good Lord, this is so embarrassing. I'm so sorry. How can I help and be supportive to you in this moment? Far be it from me to defend the fiancé, but what we have uh, on him is um, my fiancé would like me to take his name but understands his reasons, understands my reasons and is supportive of my decision. I, I think it's not insane or, or inherently unreasonable for a fiancé to have a mild preference as long as that mild preference doesn't exert any force within the relationship. Yeah. And we don't mm-hmm. exactly have evidence that the fiancé is exactly being terrible about this. The, the possible ways of interpreting this certainly include that the fiancé is, as you suggest, Danny, being kind of um, unreasonable in a lower key way. Mm-hmm. But it could also be that the fiancé, you know, had a, a, an a priori preference, which which they have sim- since abandoned and, yeah. and turned over. That is true. I think I just saw engaged to the perfect man and it, my mind filled in, usually when letters start like that. The perfect man is, in fact, terrible. The worst. Yeah, no, I agree. I've seen that. <laughs> As you say, a recurring guest. You've on been the on the show, show before. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm engaged to a gorgeous man who doesn't have a drinking problem, but once in a week or once in a few days. Yeah, every time he gets drunk. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Oof. All right. Um, this next one is resonant. We're all trans. This is a trans question. What? God yeah. is trans. Hey, what? <laughs> This is this is such a cheesy joke, and I'm so I glad know. we all went for it. Just like, wait a minute, you're trans? I'm trans. I'm trans. We're all trans. Well, this is fun. All right, the subject is transgender friends and sleepovers, which just... We should aw, have a sleepover. We should. Yeah. Well, we sort of do. Yeah, but that's different. Kind of, come on over, bring yeah. your... All right. Dear Prudence... I thought it was, you're right, it's you who reads I it. I was going to read this one. Darling, I'm sorry, I got confused. It's okay, you can read it if you want, No, baby. you read it. Okay. Transgender friends and sleepovers. Dear Prudence, my 12-year-old daughter is becoming good friends with a trans classmate at school. He identifies and presents as male, prefers to be called D, and uses a neutral space at school to change for PE. His gender doesn't appear to be a phase, but his mother, who I don't know well, still refers to D as her daughter and uses female pronouns slash his birth name. After a recent family party at our home that both Dee and his mom attended, a few of my daughter's female friends stayed the night, and so did Dee. I didn't think anything about it at the time, especially since I'd been talking with Dee's mom about our daughters. Later, though, I realised that if Dee had been born male, there was no way I would have let him spend the night. 
How should I handle this in the future? I want to respect Dee and treat him as a boy since that's his preference. But have I already set a precedent by allowing him to sleep over already? How have other parents handled their kids' transgender friends and sleepovers? I don't want to prohibit all sleepovers, which might seem like an obvious first solution. So uh, I, I think one of the first things that came to mind when I was reading this is... Um, I, I I don't know that there's necessarily a hard and fast rule on this one that I'm going to deliver, but um, I, I think it's important to look at what are the ways in which you are um, acknowledging and affirming Dee's gender identity right now. And it looks like so far you have joined his mother in um, referring to him as a daughter um, and right. using female pronouns and inviting him to what sound like mostly all girl groups. So if the only way that you are acknowledging or affirming his gender identity is at the last minute not inviting him to sleepovers and all you're bringing to the table is you know, some exclusion from a social circle where he feels comfortable, I don't know that that's the place to start. Um I think the place to start um would maybe be something else. Yeah, I this is a a tricky one because clearly um, Dee's mother is not a terribly affirming parent and there seems to be a lot of stuff going on there if the school is acknowledging um, Dee's trans status but his own mother is not um, so like in that sort of situation I can imagine a support network of friends being extremely important so like the solution being should I cut this kid off from his friends is like kind of a a fraught one I would say especially considering they're all 12. Right, and we don't know how the, like, cis boys in the school treat D. Right. Yeah, I I don't have a huge amount to add to this. I'm in agreement with both of you that um, I don't think cutting them off from a social support network uh, is a great idea. Um, I also, you know, ha- have a lot to say, and I've thought a lot in the last... A uh, few weeks and months about transmasculine people um, often lacking support networks um, after their transitions, and the importance of a kind of broader community and an awareness of the ways in which transmasculine people um, are often wrongly lumped in with cis men in some ways. It's kind of complex and difficult to talk about, but. Um, this is maybe an example of how a social network in which D's uh, masculinity is affirmed, D's, D's trans maleness is affirmed, um, is connected to a kind of sociality with women. Uh, that's not, um, to my mind, a problem. Uh, and it's actually, in this case, something that I would want to defend. Yeah. So I think we're all kind of on the same page about, like, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. I think the place to start with... And again, that doesn't mean you should call up Dee's mom and and start a fight with her. Like, Mm -hmm. this is a tricky uh, path to walk, especially given the age of your kids. Um, But I think, you know, it is okay, you know, if you are around Dee's mom and you refer to Dee by the name that Dee goes by Mm -hmm. and to use male pronouns, that's okay. Um, You don't Mm -hmm. have to defer to uh, what his mom is doing, um, you know. Uh, just because she is unable to respect his gender identity. Again, I don't think that you should like come at it in a really aggressive way or try to um, start a fight with her. But I think that that would be um, probably a better place to start. Um, Certainly, you know, you could talk to your daughter about 
um, like, d- does D need other forms of support? Is there any other way that you can be helpful um, to D? Um, and and certainly, um, you know, you you can certainly think about like you can certainly think about like. Um, it, it, it's it's not quite the same thing as kicking D out of your house to mm-hmm. say like when it comes to sleepovers we have a girls only policy but I, I don't know that's kind of like where you run into problems of like what about lesbians and like kids are tw- like it, it's hard I think to have hard and fast rules about gender with children mm-hmm. um, and one of the things that this is exposing is the sort of fault lines along so doing and you know asking one question can raise a lot of other questions I don't have a great solution like if you always do the following five things, you will never run into problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a really good point. Um, maybe one of the queries is: How would you feel about a trans feminine girl coming and staying? If if your your daughter and uh, her her friend circle became um, close with somebody who had been assigned a male sex at birth, but now uh, was a a, a girl. Would that be complicated? How would those complexities interact? I mention this because one of the things you say is that if D had been born male, there's no way I would have let him spend the night, which I, I know entirely where that comes from. It's, it's, it strikes me as a sort of unavoidable observation about the situation in which you found yourself. Um, but I wonder if that too isn't a sort of hard and fast rule um, that you know, it's worth thinking about in relation to the particular individuals and particular sets of relations concerned. Mm-hmm. Well, and actually, in fairness, I edited that line because that line was originally if D were born with male genitals. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. And like... That I, changes I, I think that's important to talk... Like, the re- I obviously, like, I often edit letters for, for length, for, for clarity, mm. um, and, and also if I feel like it's not necessary to bring up somebody's particular way of looking at things. Yeah. But I, I think that's actually important in, in part because... It, it often comes back to cis people spend a lot of time thinking about people's genitals when somebody is trans. Mm-hmm, um, and right. that also raises the question of like, at, at least when the letter writer was writing that, they were thinking if you're born with male genitals, then you'd be a boy. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's this is such a, an interesting letter. And like, I, I would say like, it's worth also for the letter writer to think about like discussing it directly with her daughter um, and explaining like, I want to be supportive towards your friend. Like, what can I do? And then also like, I had like conflicted feelings about this, but like sort of talking it through, honestly, I think could be useful because something that I think doesn't help anyone is like, somewhat ignorant parents like unilaterally making decisions about like children's social lives in this kind of situation. Right. I I think that's a really good idea. That's a really good point. There is stuff that you can learn from your kids right now. Mm -hmm. um, And that this is one of those situations that does not necessarily require an immediate parental laying down of any kind of law. Um, Right. Like, you know, if you ask your, your daughter, like, Hey, was this comfortable? You know, was everybody comfortable? Was everybody um, feeling like they were were doing okay and like um you know like some of that is just about trust because like if your kids are having big makeout sleepovers like it almost doesn't matter like who's attending you mm-hmm. know like there's something else going on so like i don't think the presence of this like extremely young trans boy is going to charge the situation in any way that like it wouldn't already be charged Right. And it is tough because, like, I, I could potentially see D feeling like, 
you know, I, I already like live a life in which often my maleness is real conditional depending on who I'm with. And it's a relief to just like have a sleepover with some friends who, you know, call me by my name, use my pronouns and aren't hassling me. Mm-hmm. I could also see a situation in which D feels like this is another situation where my mom forces me to do girl stuff in an attempt to, you know, push me yeah. back into my gender assignment from birth. And mm-hmm. yeah. um, so some of it might also just be, and again, without being like, hey, D, let me pull you aside and be like, how you doing in a mm-hmm. way that really draws attention to how different D is from the other kids. But um, just kind of pay attention. Does D seem like kind of miserable being there? Does does D seem like relieved to be sort of left alone? Mm-hmm. Like read the room. Maybe we could take a moment to say as well that um, this is not in direct response to the letter writer who has a particular set of issues, but just more broadly, this is another moment where parents of cis boys can sort of step up as well and start to ask um, what what are their protocols for inclusion and and and, and how are um, how are cis boys being encouraged to affirm and welcome uh, trans boys into their social scenarios and their circles. Um, it, it seems to me that, and I, I say this simply because what we're dealing with is a peculiarity or a, or a complexity within uh, a female sociality. And mm-hmm. the female social group in question is children, but it's still a female sociality. Um, and I just, there's some part of me that thinks, I bet I bet the boys aren't thinking in these terms. Um, and I would want to, yeah, I, I I just want to notice that this is this is a question that is often outsourced to women. Yeah. Uh, it's treated as though it were women's problems, which it isn't. Yeah, absolutely. That is a just a word right there. Whew. Okay, so uh, keeping with the theme today, which is just like biographical subjects for all three of us. Uh, this next letter, the subject is estranged from family. Dear Prudence, I haven't spoken to my immediate family for almost two years. My mother abused me emotionally and financially while we were growing up, not to mention some horrible things she involved me in with her internet boyfriends when I was a kid. I've realized she's a narcissist and will never change or apologize. My dad just enables her, and the last time I spoke to him, he said he ignored my previous calls because he, quote, wasn't ready to talk to me because I upset her and told her to leave me alone for a while. That broke my heart because I always thought he was my only decent parent. Fast forward two years, and I've been doing really well. I've been putting a priority on my own family and myself. I talked to a cousin recently, though, who gave me a huge guilt trip about what I'm doing to my parents and how sad my dad was on the last Father's Day. I feel like I'm emotionally back at square one. Do I call him and risk being rejected again just so I can clear my conscience? I don't care to ever speak to my mother again, and I don't see him being okay with that. Uh, This one hits close to home, Danny. This one killed me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I think it's so hard with letter writers who want to hold on to one family member as the good one and having to acknowledge the ways in which that person has betrayed them in some ways as profoundly as the person who actively abused them is just, it's incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts, Carta, about how you would encourage this particular letter writer to think about this situation or what they should do or not do or... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, like, this is a very familiar situation. Um, And I think that they're really on the right track already, having decided to cut things off with their mother, because that already is like a very difficult decision, um, and can be very fraught. And I think there's a lot of uh, their family trying to guilt them into getting back in touch with, you know, either of their parents 
And like my most basic advice would be to say like, don't do anything like that puts you in a position of having to apologize for setting your own boundaries because it's like the number one, like emotionally abusive trick to, to call you up and tell you how sad your boundaries have made someone, you know, like you said that you can't talk to us. And so we sat all alone and we're so sad. Like nobody's going to come out of that feeling great. And like, if you call them and like try and, and speak to them, like you're going to be put in a position to apologize for setting boundaries. You know, if you want that prolonged relationship, you're going to be asked to, to tear those boundaries down. Um, and so I would say like, what they're doing is, is right. And something that they're going to have to like double down on, um, as they move forward is setting stronger and stronger boundaries. Like honestly, this cousin who called up sounds like a jerk also. Right. Um, What I'm doing to my parents is refusing to accept the lie that my abuse didn't happen. mm -hmm. Right. That's not something you're doing to your parents. That's reality. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Absolutely. And like, especially that, that aspect of like, um, the, the dad being sad on father's day, like that, that felt so familiar, you know, um, I myself am estranged from my father and will regularly hear from family members like, oh, he was so sad on this or that holiday. Um, shortly before we became estranged, he called up both me and my brother on Mother's Day to scold us for not calling him, um, like to comfort him about the death of our mother. Um, because he would say things like, well, I lost a wife and you only lost a mother. Jeez. You know, like there's always these sort of like uh, ranking of emotions um that take place in this kind of situation and like there's no way for the the letter writer or like the the person in the position of having been emotionally abused to win you know or like come out in a way where their own feelings are being validated and respected because like the entire system is built on invalidating their feelings and positioning um their abuser or abusers as the only people with valid emotions in the whole world mm-hmm. who need to be taken care of all the time. Yeah, I, I think, too, like, part of the key is, like, the real pain was I always thought he was my only decent parent. Um, mm-hmm. But if he spent a lifetime enabling her um, and if he is, like, indirectly encouraging other relatives to um, make you feel guilt for not apologizing for acknowledging your own abuse, he's not a good parent. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a weaker parent, so his abuse might not look as bad because he wasn't as active. Um, but weak and passive um, support of abuse um, is bad. It's really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think the reason your dad was sad on Father's Day was because he's a bad father. Mm-hmm. And um, absolutely, that's not your fault. I, I just think, especially to that line about some horrible things she involved me in with her internet boyfriends when I was a kid. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. There's only a handful of things that that could be, and none of them are the kind of thing that you can just move past easily, right? Um, or say, mm-hmm. "Hey, bygones, bygones." Like if that's the level of stuff that your dad has been complicit in, yeah. and it's a little unclear whether or not he is still partnered with your mother, or if he is simply still like, number one on her defense team. But either way, um, if he's trying to defend that um, or encourage you to sweep it under the rug, he's not a good person. He's not a good dad. And I'm so sorry. Yeah. 
I, I want to affirm all of that. Um, I think that's true. I think holding a boundary is extremely important with an abusive parent, whether that abuse be uh, the sort of tyrannical kind or the, the weak, uh, enabling kind. Uh, so I admire that very much. Um, and I also want to speak to a different part of this, um, which is just that when, when you say uh, your conscience feels unclear, or that you call, calling uh, your father would would clear your conscience. Um, you know, I, I have some experience rele- relevant to this topic, um, and the feeling of guilt that I sometimes have um, around people who have hurt me uh, in various different ways. And one of the things that I find it helpful to do is to reflect that. Um, I'm not saying this is the case with you. I really, I don't know whether it is or not, but it's a feeling about the sort of guilty conscience. One of the things I I tend to think is, um, initially my mind will go to, if someone has hurt me, it does not matter what I have done. Um, I have no, I'm purely a victim in this scenario. And I have found in my own life a degree of strength and a degree of solace reflecting that um, I too, even in relationships where I, I have been hurt, um, have made choices that I regret, have made choices that um, I would not w- wish to make again. Um, I'm not saying you have done anything wrong in this situation. It does not sound as though you have. Um, but I just I just want to say that I relate to that feeling very much. Uh, I don't think it's a bad feeling or a wrong feeling. I don't think you should be punishing yourself for having that feeling. Um, by all means, I think you should be holding the boundary, as as Carter and Danny have been saying. And I also just want to say those feelings of self punishment are deeply relatable to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, and like just sometimes there's no right answers. You mm-hmm. know, like cutting off your parents is an incredibly difficult thing to do, especially if you still feel close or tender mm-hmm. towards one of them. But when the only alternative is to expose yourself to being re-traumatized over and over again, like you have to go with the lesser of the two evils, um, even though you know that it's going to make you feel guilty. Like there's no wonderful compromising solution here that will leave everyone feeling good. Yeah, I think the key point here is that um, two years later, I'm doing really well. Mm -hmm. Like I think that's the thing to Mm -hmm. hold on to. Continue to do the things that enable you to be well. Mm-hmm. Um, that does not mean you have to just stuff these feelings aside. Um, I hope that you can share about them with members of your own family or with a therapist or even just in a journal. And that includes the complex or messy feelings um, or the feelings of guilt or the desire to mend fences that may not be possible, but doesn't mean the desire isn't still there. Um, and I think that those feelings, you deserve the chance to talk about them with somebody. I just mm-hmm. don't think that. Um, your father or your cousin um, are going to be able to work through them with you because, you know, they fundamentally just can't be trusted. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. Well, Grace has to get out of here and teach some young minds. So she's going to leave us. And Carta, it's just you and me from here on out. Carta, lovely to speak with you, sister. We'll speak with you again soon. Yeah. Oh, it's so nice to, to hear your voice, Grace. And we'll talk soon. Good luck with teaching. Okay. So. More estrangement, um, but but slightly more complexity in this one, I think. Uh, yeah. This one's all you. This one is wild. Um, subject, the wedding that wasn't. Dear Prudence, I was with, quote, Tom for five years and lived with him for four. We got engaged a year ago and planned our wedding for last June. 
In April, Tom's sister and mother began engaging in what I now understand is a spike in the narcissistic emotional abuse cycle. His sister was my best friend and maid of honor, and used lies to turn Tom's family against me. Tom did not defend me and demanded I apologize for something I did not do. Four days before the wedding, his mom and sister told him, it's her or us. He demanded I fix it by apologizing and begging forgiveness. I called off the wedding four days before because I was so hurt. I was having constant panic attacks. Initially, we went to marriage counseling, but after four sessions, he broke up with me, saying he did not know how this could be fixed. I've tried to point out his family's emotionally abusive behavior and poor boundaries with them in a loving way, and he has admitted there is evidence of this, but doesn't know what to do about it. He says he can't live without his mom and sister, and he can't live without me either. It's been four months. We talk a few times a week, spend some time together, but are not back together. I want to be with him because I love him and he is a wonderfully kind, fun, responsible man who makes me happy outside this family drama. How can we fix these poor boundaries with his family and begin again? So I I, I have so many questions here. I feel yeah. like we do not have a wholly reliable letter writer, mm-hmm. which, which is not to say that I don't believe that this has been like a genuinely painful series of events. I just I feel like they left out some really crucial details. Like, yeah, what 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 was it that she told the rest of the family such that Tom, like, does Tom believe that they're true? Does Tom think his sister's a liar and just wants to paper over it? Does Tom genuinely think that you did it, but is still willing to kind of hang out with you? Like either way, I, it doesn't speak super well of Tom or his ability to identify real harm. Uh, right. Or to, and like what what pivoted the sister from being the letter writer's best friend to like deciding to destroy their life? Like something happened there. Yeah. And, and again, like it, it's just the kind of language that feels like I, I'm familiar with the abuse cycle, the sort of like active abuse followed by like, well, you know, um, over-the-top apologizing and love bombing and the escalation of violence when somebody tries to leave, et cetera. I'm not familiar with a spike in the narcissistic emotional abuse cycle. I, I don't know that that's like a like an industry standard understood to be universal kind of thing that a certain type or class of person does. Like, does mm-hmm. that, do you know what I mean? Like, I, again, I'm, it, it's certainly possible that, that Tom's mother and sister are, are real jerks who started spreading lies about you. I just... I feel a little uh, some uh, something something goes up when I see that phrase without any detail. I'm like, yeah, what are you what are you trying to say here? I agree. I mean, based on what we do know, and I mean, I I believe that um, four days before the wedding, there was some sort of confrontation. The letter writer called off the wedding after four sessions of marriage counseling. Um Tom said, okay, we can't, this isn't going to work. Like, assuming all of those things are true, I don't really see a way for the letter writer to get back together with Tom, because it seems like there are some extremely fundamental incompatibilities. And like, someone is not respecting someone else's boundaries. Yeah. um, At all. And like, like, if the letter writer is 100% correct, then, like, 
it doesn't really seem like Tom is being a great, wonderful, responsible man. Yeah, it also um, doesn't seem like Tom really wants to get back together with you. So I guess my right. question would be like, if they're that awful and he wants to keep them in his life and also he hasn't apologized for the way he treated you and also he broke up with you, um, you know, and he doesn't really want to get formally back together with you. Uh, why do you want to be with him? What yeah. What on earth do you think you would get out of a relationship with this guy who puts you so low on his list of priorities? Especially after living together for four years, dating for five. Like, that's not an in, insubstantial amount of time. Um, like you know, the way that this letter is written, it sounds like they had a great relationship and then it went completely nuclear because Tom's sister and mother are evil. You know, like, they're, they're like, evil geniuses. And, like, as you said, there's a lot more detail that we're missing. But, like, okay, assuming that's true, if that's, if that's your perception of things, like, why on earth would you want to get back together with this guy? Right, like... He's a wonderfully kind, fun, and responsible man who makes me happy outside of this family drama. Like, what has been... It doesn't sound like there's been anything but this family drama, at least since June. um, Right. Or, sorry, since April. Um, And that's not just, like, a little family drama. That's It sounds nightmarish. So, like, that that just kind of makes me question the letter writer's judgment, this sort of, like thing at the end of like, but otherwise things are great. So how do we make this work? And it's like, did you read your own letter? Yeah. And I mean, if it's like, okay, we talk a few times a week and spend some time together, like, you know, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of like passion there, you know, ready to be rekindled. It sounds like, oh, hey, like what happened between us was kind of fucked up and we're both still hanging out, I guess. But like, it doesn't sound like they're both, like, desperate to get back together despite his family. Yeah. You know, you guys went to, you called off a wedding. You then called off marriage counseling after four sessions. Like, he said he doesn't know how this can be fixed. So when you ask me, how can we fix these poor boundaries? Um, if he doesn't know how to do it and doesn't seem to want to and also has not asked you to get back together with him, the answer is you can't. So yeah. I think what you need to do is spend some time figuring out, you know, either why do I want to get back together with somebody who kind of doesn't want to get back together with me um, and and also, like, do a little autopsy of this situation. Because, again, it's just mm-hmm. it's very unclear. I don't want to say it's either all your fault or all theirs, but there's clearly a, a lot to be unpacked here, as they say. Um, Definitely. And, the place and to- like... On the subject of boundaries, I would say uh, you should probably stop hanging out with Tom. You know, like there's it doesn't really sound like the letter writer is getting anything out of it other than like extremely hard feelings. Um, And like maybe some space would be a good thing, you know, like after five years. Yeah. And this horrible breakup, like I can't imagine it feels good to see this person. Yeah. At all. Yeah. And I think sometimes people will like learn a little bit about the idea of boundaries and they'll think, ah, okay, great. How do I make other people have them? And <laughs> you can't. You, you you can kind of only do yours. Like you can encourage somebody right. else to set better ones, but ultimately that's their 
responsibility. So this whole thing of like, how do we fix his poor boundaries with his family? You don't. But you can fix your poor boundaries with your ex-boyfriend. Um, yeah, absolutely. You can stop hanging out with him a few times a week. Um, and you can spend some time by yourself in therapy figuring out, um, you know, kind of the, the various things that went wrong in this relationship and what you want to do differently in the future so that, you know, not that you can guarantee that you won't run into like big problems in relationships, but you can certainly say, how do I make sure that I don't respond in the same way in the future if if I'm getting similar problems in a relationship? Yeah, absolutely. I, I And I also just like the nosy part of me is like, I really, really want to know what his sister says you did. Yeah, her ex-best friend, his sister. Right? Like, like did a 180. Like, what? Yeah, I would love to know. And, and it was so big that, like, the sister said to him, it's, it's, it's her or us, and he picked mm-hmm. them, but only, like, he only picked them 70% and trying to kind of keep you around. <laughs> like, this is just a, a mess from start to finish. And, um, yeah. yeah, if anyone involved in this situation would like to write in and say what the thing was, I would love to hear it. Yeah, this is like um, I just watched uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, and Ooh, it's like a I think unsolved mystery. It's a great, and I mean, like the the subject line being the wedding that wasn't, and then like this partial information. It's like I feel very frustrated um, that there's no closure here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. Um, I I love I hate open ended endings. Like I really really want I I always want things to be spelled out for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So on a very different topic, I, I found this one quite charming. Uh, the subject line of this next letter is senior dating. Dear Prudence, I haven't dated since 1990. I know a couple of guys about my age at work and elsewhere that it seems I could develop an interest in, but I don't know if they're seeing anyone or even if they like girls. The rules back then were that guys preferred to make the first move, but nobody has. How do I ask either of these guys out in a whole different millennium from when I learned the rules? I'm not that far from retirement, if it matters. This is really sweet. This is really sweet. But, I, you know, I also want to point out, it may be that when you were dating in 1990, you knew guys who preferred to make the first move. But, like, 1990, we were a year away from my own private Idaho. Like, it was not... <laughs> do you know what, Like, 1990 was... Women were, you know... Women were asking men out sometimes. Yeah, I mean, sure. Like this, this definitely makes it sound like 1990 was like the like the 1950s you would see in the movies, right? You know, you 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 were four years away from like Margaret Cho's first stand-up special. Like people were people were subverting gender norms in 1990. Thank you for putting 1990 on the chronology that I understand, which is the years that Margaret Cho released stand-up specials. Thank you. Yeah, basically that and, like, River Phoenix movies. That's all I got. Um, yeah, I was born um, uh, for BC. That's for before Cho um, in the year 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I, I just appreciate meeting another another person who uses my calendar. Yes. Um, so, by the way, I don't want to say this to be like, ha ha, letter writer, you should have known in 1990 that new queer cinema was right around the corner. <laughs> and so now you should just be super, super comfortable with like 2018 era uh, mores or mores. I actually only ever see that word written out, so I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, I mostly just mean like that it will probably be helpful for you to think of that as like, ah, that was like the bubble that I was in 
But there are guys out there my age who were dating in 1990 and who are dating now who will not be like shocked, floored, horrified if I say, hey, I I think you're really cute. I don't know if you date women, but if you do and you'd like to go out with me, I'd sure enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That is a charming thing to say. And men like it. You seem like a nice person, letter writer. And like, I can't see it going too badly. Like, if you don't want to be super direct, you can also ask someone else you work with, you know, like... Hey, does such and such like women? Are they open to dating right now? Like, you know, like those normal things. It's it's okay. Like, um, my guess would be that like if they are open to dating, they're probably feeling just as frozen as you. Like, oh my God, there's this person that I work with who I'm um interested in but like i don't want to freak them out and like it's been so long since i dated etc etc like letting people know that you're available is not a bad thing there's also lots of reasons why somebody might not be casually asking out coworkers at work that have nothing to do yeah. with like uncertainty about which gender asks which out like yeah absolutely uh, lots of people just don't like to date at work and frankly i'd like to put in a plug for not dating at work like if you're <laughs> not sure how to go about it and you're feeling kind of nervous, I think a great place to start is people you will not have to work with in case things get weird or uncomfortable. Um, yeah, absolutely. That said, lots of people also do data work. Um, I met <laughs> I met Grace at her place of work, uh, although we were not co-workers in any meaningful sense. Um, I guess it depends on your work. You know, if you work in an office with four people, maybe don't date at work. If you work in a warehouse, might be different. I don't know. I mean, if it's an Amazon warehouse, like, you, you probably need just, like, all the help you can get in like fucking turning the place upside down and um oh yeah absolutely yeah but, if you work in an amazon warehouse you should date at work and by date at work i mean form a union <laughs> man i'm so sorry for Ugh, okay we're just gonna get off track in terms of like how bad have you played the game by the way um spend all of jeff bezos money I saw it going around. I didn't actually play it. I found myself playing it and also becoming like judgmental of what my options were, where I was like, I do not want to fund this. <laughs> this is not how I want to like fund things like animals are not going to be my priority in redistributing all of this money. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think I failed at that game, too. Anyways, this is way, way off tap off topic. Um, so all of which is to say, generally, it might be wise not to date at work, um, especially if you want to cast a wider net. Um, like, it would be one thing if you're like, I'd like to date one coworker. But if you're like, eh, there's a couple guys I could potentially go out with, I could see that getting messy quickly. Um, yeah. But when it comes to elsewhere, one thing that I think is really good is you say that you think you could develop an interest in them. That is such a good stage to begin asking people out at rather than like, you know what I'm going to do? Sit with this feeling for a long time, develop a very serious crush that only I know about and have a like one-sided emotional relationship with this person until it feels so big that it is going to bust through my skin and I have to confess my love to them in front of a vending machine. Um, That's what we call the the Danny Ortberg method. I have never in my life done that. Somebody has done that to me, although it wasn't in a vending machine and I did not appreciate it. (laughs) It was long, long, long ago. I was a pale young curate then. But it's not a good strategy. It doesn't, it's it's not good. It's not good, generally speaking, to have the first conversation about your feelings for somebody else when they reach such a profound level that you're like, I have to say this or I will explode. Because that means the other person either has to catch up with you real fast um, or feels very uncomfortable around you. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, this is sort of a, a, a sideways suggestion, but like, you know, you could always 
make an okay cupid profile or something like that like as far as i understand online dating if you are a woman who is alive and you make an online dating profile your problem will not be not having enough guys contacting you so like if you want to meet people it's at least worth a try. You know, you don't have to start with like your workplace. You can you can start in like more casual ways. Yeah. And I think, too, if that's not like because the question is not exactly how do I meet guys? It's more like how do I go about making the first move, given that I have not done that historically and it's been a long time since I was in the, in the game. So whether this is somebody that you meet online or somebody that you see around or somebody that you know, maybe you work at a big, big office and these guys are all in super different departments and you would never have to run into them again if you didn't want to. Um, So in that case, I think my advice would be, uh, you know, if you just think of them as like kind of interesting, but not somebody you know well yet, that's a great place to ask. And if you want to date, I I think a really good strategy to adopt is just I'm going to ask a lot of people out. Uh, I'm going to let people know straight up if I'm interested in them. Uh, I'm going to make it clear that if they don't feel the same way, that's totally cool and that I will just sail on and I will like accept within myself that I will sometimes hear no. Um, if I'm a woman who has been historically used to being asked out, that might feel kind of jarring or surprising or like, wow, I, w- I have never thought about how I would face romantic rejection, so I don't know what to do with it. Just say like, that's just part of the game. That's what happens when you ask people out. It's not personal. Um, lots of people just don't want to date uh, other people. And it's not because they're like, you are specifically awful. It's just, I'm not feeling it. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I think if there's some guys you'd like to ask out, I would just go with, hey, um, I don't know if you're interested, in it, but if you are, I'd love to go out sometime. Let me know if so. If not, no big deal. Like that's literally as casual as you need to be about it. And if they seem a little put off um, or a little hesitant, you know, take that as a sign that they're not super jazzed about it and move on to the next guy. And if they're like, mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah, I, I I, would love to go get a date meal. Thank you. OK, then there you go. You guys just had like a pleasant but slightly awkward uh, decision to go on a date together. <laughs> I like that, you know, the, the hypothetical guy saying yes is like written by Joss Whedon. Ouch. Yeah, that's right, Danny. I said it. That was uncalled for. That was deeply uncalled for. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's I think that's going to be fine. I don't think you're going to like shock and appall anyone. I don't think that you're going to be like um, doing or saying anything that is so out of the norm for like guys of your generation that they're just going to be like, I- I'm horrified and disgusted that you want to get dinner with me. Really fucked up that you would ask me that. I-, I-, I really do think that what you are proposing is charming and fun. And I think a lot of guys are going to be like, oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Like getting asked out is fun. It's nice. Yeah. And it's just like you're just trying to get to know people better. Like it's it's really, really totally okay that some of them are not going to be down for it, that some of them are, and that you're going to feel a little self-conscious at first because it's been a long time since you went out with anyone and you've kind of never asked a guy out. But the more you do it, the more it will just feel like, oh, there's not some like magical recipe behind it. You just tell someone if you think that they're interesting um, and they either respond or they don't. Great. Mm -hmm. I can do that. All right. So this next one is way more fraught. Sorry. We're just going to like jump across tones really far. And uh, I think it's your turn to read. I think it is. Um, Okay. So the subject line, um, child's friend with mental illness. 
Dear Prudence, My neighbor's 10-year-old son, Sam, was admitted to a psychiatric hospital last week. I don't know what transpired to get him there, but his mom has told me he's now safe, but sad, that he's not able to come home yet. Until last week, I had been regularly picking him up after school and walking him to the bus stop in the morning with my own kids who all get along and play together. My kids have of course now been asking, where's Sam? I have so far just told them that he is sick and being taken care of so he can get better. My question is, how much should I tell them and how? There is such a stigma against mental illness, and I don't want my kids to think that there is anything wrong with Sam, just that he is having a hard time right now and needs some help from doctors to get him back on track. I don't know how much Sam or his family want other people to know about his predicament, and I worry my children will inadvertently tell other kids at school more than they should. I feel like it should be Sam's choice to share what he wants to. I'm hoping Sam comes home soon, and I'm assuming that when he's ready, I'll be back to picking him up after school with my kids. Should I just wait and let Sam tell his own story? Should I try and break the ice a little before he comes home, just so my kids don't bombard him with a million questions upon his return? I worry for this young boy and just want to do right by him. Maybe I'm overthinking all of this. Um, so... Here's my hot take. I don't think you're overthinking all of this. And I think there is a very, very simple solution, which is to ask Sam's mom, who you seem to be on good terms with, um, how you want or how how she wants you to talk about it. Like, I think if this child is 10 and you're in, in contact with Sam's parent, like, I don't think it's wrong to say, like, hey, my kids have been asking after Sam, I've just told him that he's not feeling well. Um, how would you like me to talk to them? Like, I don't think that's unreasonable. Yeah. Um, and I think it may also help to wait until Sam is home. Um, it, it sounds like um, he's still in the hospital. So I think maybe if your friend is still dealing with having a child in the hospital, hold off on that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. like And like offer, you know, offer support to whatever degree you're able to also. Yeah. Yeah. But So I think wait on this. Again, I agree that you're not overthinking this. I think one of the reasons this is just hard is there's not a lot of people often don't talk about mental health issues. Um, they especially don't know how to talk about it with kids. So there's no like sense of how do we discuss this with one another. So, of course, you're feeling pretty adrift. Um, so stick with the Sam's sick right now. We don't know when he's going to be home. But. We really hope he gets better soon. So mm-hmm. that's that's all you need to say to your kids right now. Um, offer your support. Ask if there's anything you can do to help with your friend um, as her child is in the hospital. And then after uh, he comes home and, like, the immediate danger has passed and she seems a little less, like, in the immediate thick of it, then you can go ahead and say, hey, uh, you know, the kids have been asking. I have just said that he's sick. Is there anything in particular you would like me to say? If not, I will err on the side of not saying anything uh, until or unless I hear from you just so she knows it's not like you have to formulate a script now Um, you're mostly just like looking to her for guidance or preferences yeah yeah and I mean if you're worried about your own kids bombarding him with a million questions you can say to your kids like oh when someone's been in the hospital you don't want to overwhelm them Um, you know like don't Don't only talk about that. Tell him what's been going on with your lives. You know, like, there's ways that you can kind of steer it without getting explicitly into, like, 
the stuff that you're worried about. Yeah, and you don't have to make it seem like this is the forbidden topic we don't ask about. Um, right. You know, this is a chance for you to kind of model like, hey, you know, I don't know a whole lot more. I think right now the doctors are pretty busy trying to make sure that Sam can get better. Um, but I miss him, too. And, you know, maybe we can make him a card or, um, you know, think about what we might want to do uh, when he's able to come home. Like, again, age appropriate stuff that's kind of like, yes, we can talk about these things. We can say we miss him. We can say we wish we knew more. Um, but we don't know. And um, we'll we'll find out more as time goes on. Sometimes when people are sick, their family gets pretty tired and they're not always able to answer a lot of questions. Doesn't mean that we won't mm-hmm. be able to learn more later, but it does mean that right now the kindest thing we can do for them um, is let them take care of Sam. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So I know that we had saved a secret bonus letter for in case there was time. Um, the subject line is, I'm a young person worried about being too old. Dear Prudence, I'm in my mid-twenties. I'm aware intellectually that I'm still young. The world is my oyster, etc., etc. But everything I want in life takes so much time, and it has me paranoid and frozen when it comes to the idea of starting anything. I'm transgender. Medical transition would take me X years before I can start looking or living the way that I want. I want to start a family, but I'm single and relationships don't happen overnight. I know my dream job, but it takes years of study, and most people in that field started younger than I am. I want to own my own house, car, etc., but it will take time to build savings and credit, which is harder if I'm also spending money on my studies, my transition, etc. Thinking about any of my life plans and doing the temporal math leaves me frozen and feeling several decades older than I am. How can I accomplish any of this? Am I too old? I feel like by starting all of these things so late and from scratch means that I'm already past my expiration date and I don't know what to do about that. So, oh, my friend. Admittedly, yeah, I, I feel so much for this letter writer. Admittedly, I, I am biased and trans. I am trans and biased. Um, I, I do think a lot of these feelings of frozenness and it's too late could potentially stem from putting off transition. Or not not that you're putting off transition, but the fact that it sounds like the letter writer has not yet begun. And it's like, given that they talk about the money, like it sounds like medical transition is on the table, hormones, etc. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe um, that that can often be a huge factor in terms of feeling like it's too late. Why bother? Um, everything that I want is so far out of reach. I can't really muster up the energy to do it. And again, in my own experience, the experience of a lot of other trans people, starting transition can address a lot of that. So I think it's possible that if you were to try to start to transition now this other stuff while it would still all be real and true it's not like it would make your other problems in life go away or questions about time um, disappear it would feel maybe less like everything is too late i'm already old and in my midwood like does that make sense do you know what i mean yeah absolutely and i mean like you and i and grace um and so many other people have had the experience of coming to this um a little later in life. Like I didn't acknowledge transness or start thinking about transitioning until I was 25. Um, And, you know, at that point it did feel like, you know, I was at the bottom of a mountain staring up at it. Like there's just so much that you have to do legally and financially and medically. Um, So I, I really understand that feeling. Um, What I personally have experienced, and I think many people have, is that when you start, when you actually start doing things that make you feel like you're working towards that goal, these larger anxieties about not being able to do the things you want 
start to kind of subside because it feels like you're being productive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard when you're just sitting at the, you know, at the start and like you don't know how you're possibly going to do all of these big things because like when you list them all out like that, you know, it seems insurmountable. And I mean, you can keep going. You can be like, I need to save for retirement. I need to save for my kids to go to college when I have kids. Um, I need to buy two cars. You know, you can just keep adding things to your your giant life list um, that will feel impossible because you're in your mid-20s. But I think a lot of the stuff that that you can try and work on right now is like finding trans community, trying to get on something like lower um, effort, like hormones, um, and just feeling like you're getting started in a way that like pushes you forward and like lets you feel like you're actually achieving these goals as opposed to just like feeling terrified of like all these big things that you have to do. Right. Cause I think, um, that's not to say like all of those things will just feel like easy, no problem, but they will not. Oh no, of course not. They will not maybe loom quite like I, certainly for me, things that would really trip me up about like time and accomplishments and mortality that before I transitioned, um, felt like so big. I would just have to like lie in bed all day and just feel hopeless suddenly shifted to, no, I'm not thrilled about the idea of dying someday. And I do have certain goals that I'm like, man, I wish I were closer to achieving them than I am. But they no longer feel like they can sit on my chest and sink me down into my mattress in the way that they used to. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Because like, um, once you start experiencing the world as your actual gender, things feel better, too. Yeah, they do. Like, right now... Like extrapolating, I imagine it feels difficult to get into a relationship because you haven't started the important elements of your transition. Um, It feels difficult to apply for a job because you feel scared that like your transition will interfere with the job. There's just all of these things that come back to getting this big element of your life kind of sorted out. And like, that's hard. But once you start moving and actually doing things in that direction, it does get easier to work on these other things because you're not paralyzed by the the big like, oh, but like I'm going to make this big change to my life and that'll undermine everything else sort of anxiety. Yeah. And I don't want to make the promise of like, I can guarantee you that the day you start hormones, you're going to be filled with such a renewed energy and zest for life that nothing <laughs> will ever be able to get in your way. That's not That's not a promise that I can make. Um, but I do think that if you like know that transition is important and necessary for your quality of life, starting that is going to feel immediately, I think, more meaningful than any of those other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I like for me, I'm a little over a year into hormones, um, with some stops and starts. Um, I don't look or. I'm not received um, the way that I would like to, which is Chris Pine. Um, I also don't pass. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't pass yet. Um, I, you know, As Chris I, Pine. I, as yeah, Chris no. Pine. Um, and again, like, that's not to say that, like, you know, passing is the only way to be trans or that it's a goal everyone needs to share. But I just mean, like, for me, I would like to. Um, it would be pretty great. Um, mm-hmm. And it is hard to um, do a lot of the work and go through a lot of the difficult stuff of transition while also getting like a lot of the time but I also feel a lot better 
um, and I'm a lot closer to getting served than I was a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. He said as his voice cracked all over the place. Um, <laughs> and and some stuff that even like just used to feel devastating before I started hormones is now like, yeah, I still don't like this part about myself or this is still difficult, but I know that I'm moving in the direction that I want to be moving and um, having other, you know, just uh, it, it opens up a lot of stuff or even things like, you know, if you want to start a family, um, again, if medical transition is what is on the table and part of what you would like to at least consider is whether or not you want to have biological children, that's a great thing to think about right now. Because, right. again, you know, like I didn't start thinking about transition until I like realistically, I didn't start thinking about transition until I was in my early 30s. Um, and by the time I was talking to a doctor and they were like, have you thought about like your reproductive options? Um, I was like. Yeah, don't they involve like taking female hormones and harvesting eggs? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, great. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I need, I need to start hormones right now. Um, I cannot take female hormones. Um, That is not an option. So that was like, you know, that was painful. That was a choice that was made for me. Um, And uh, sorry, I, I feel like I'm really dominating this conversation. I think that's often a lot of the times why it feels really hard when we first start letting ourselves think about transition. I think for mm-hmm. many of us, the first thought is it's too late. Puberty was too late, you know, like it was too late when I was 13 yeah. years old. Yeah, I mean, and you're not dominating the conversation. I mean, I, I think you're right. And like, these are very universal feelings. Like when I started, like, um, I have no expectation that um listeners know what I look like now but um I do like pretty consistently get gendered correctly like it's very rare for me not to be gendered correctly at this point um but when I started you know when I was age 25 I was like uh a tall or I was perceived as a tall man with like a very thick beard you know and like it took a lot of time to move past that um and a lot of work and like um, at the beginning, it felt impossible. Like, how am I ever going to get to a point where I feel, you know, feminine in any way or attractive in any way? Um, when like my heart beats too hard, you know, like just every aspect of my body felt wrong. Um, but like I did get there and it just took some time and like effort and the help of my friends. Um, but it's ex- extremely doable. Like that's the story of pretty much every trans woman I know. Um, is that like assuming you start post puberty, like you have a lot to work against, and it feels really intense. And I I don't know um, if this letter writer is trans masculine or trans feminine. Um, but like either way, it feels like there's a lot to do. But just getting started and working on it helps. Something that I learned as I was going was that people's short-term memories are kind of poor and like they don't really remember you other than how you are currently. So if you're very worried about what it's going to be like transitioning around people in your life, like just keep in mind in a few years, they won't remember what you used to look like (laughs) or sound like. Um, and it's kind of an amazing phenomenon, but it, it, it really is true. Um, and so it's worth just doing it and giving yourself that. Yeah. And I think, again, like 
I know we have really focused on the trans aspect of this as opposed to the sort of more like general, like I'm in my mid-20s, but all the things I want are really big and will take years. And I really do believe because like you will find ways to address those questions in small manageable doses once you have addressed, I think, something that can really affect motivation. Because like Mm -hmm. I'm still late to a lot of stuff. Um, I still often like to kind of check out by watching a lot of Netflix or being on my phone instead of being present. Like, I still have a lot of the same character defects that I've always had. But um, in a lot of areas of my life, motivation I had for certain things once I uh, gave myself permission to start transitioning and was like, wait a minute, you mean I can go, like, do this thing, like, as a guy? Like, I can fly on a plane as the gender I want to be? Like... (laughs) That made a huge difference. Like, and I again, I hear this from a lot of people when someone's like, "I can get my hair cut as a girl. I want to get my hair cut." Like, yeah, it, absolutely. It makes a difference, you know. Like, if you have to go to a bank and establish a line of credit, it will feel easier to do that if it's not like a gender nightmare for you to go into a bank. Right. Like, I'm continuing to build my life in the gender that people perceive me as and that I know is not going to be my future but uh, you know it's that's hard to feel motivated about it's like why would I care about opening up a, a, a new bank account under you know I mean why would you care about banks but um yeah I, I really do think that if you prioritize um like at the very least like figuring out what would starting transition look like for you in the near future you may find, I think you will likely find that other things feel less overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're not too old. You are not too old to go to school. You are not too old to start saving money. You are not too old to date. Um, I, I Again, I really relate. To, I, I think anybody who transitions, regardless of what age they are, struggles with, am I too old? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, there's There's no question of that. Um, you're always going to feel too old. If you had started when you were 16, you would feel too old. I know people who started when they were 16, and they still say, oh, I wish that I had been one of those kids who started when they were eight or whatever, right? Like, it always feels intense and difficult. And you're quite young. And I know that you are aware intellectually. Uh, but... You are. And like the other thing about transitioning, this is like some a cliche that is true, is that like no one will be able to tell what age you are and you will feel like a dumbass teenager for a lot of it. Yeah. And that's kind of invigorating too. Yeah. I, I'm really looking forward to not looking like a 13-year-old boy. Um, I, I'm really longing for that day. But yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, uh, two years ago I looked 30. I don't look 30 now. Um, I get carded a lot, which is yeah. Like, I get I'm not, carded now too, which is what like, I didn't. Not that I'm like buying alcohol, but just like I get carded at places now. I'm like one diet coke, please, and they're like, I'd like to see your ID, and I'm like, fine. I don't like looking at it <laughs> because there's a lady on it, and she's great, but she's not me. And yeah, it, anyways, I <laughs> we could talk about this all day, but I, I really relate to like trans specific fear of mortality and the passage of time and mm-hmm. absolutely yeah i feel like your your listeners can do a, a fun drinking game where uh or candy eating game i don't know what what <laughs> games that that you would play i mean my I, listeners I are allowed to drink games. if they want to just because i'm sober doesn't mean that i'm like 
don't drink if you listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, but I feel like they could they could definitely like get a point every time I say the word absolutely in this episode. I've just been agreeing with you a lot, Danny. Oh my god! If if people did that, they would have to include whenever I say the phrase. Bear this in mind. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's a number of phrases that I'm sure I repeat about fifty times per episode, but I don't want to give people ammunition to laugh at my. Idiomatic to tease speech. you, yeah. I'm. Hey, I'm... Malcolm to manhood. Did, did you say Malcolm to manhood? I did, Carta. <laughs> that's the worst thing anyone's ever said to me. Hey, Carta, that's my gift to you, Carta. Welcome to being a woman. Oh, thank you, thank you, Danny. <laughs> um, thank you so so much for being on the show. You are fabulous. You are amazing. Oh. You have to come back. Thank you. I I really want to. I'll come back every week if you want me. I kind of do, frankly. Like we're gonna get you back soon. It's gonna be fantastic. Um, have a lovely, lovely rest of the day. Um, I'll probably give you a call later. Uh, after I'm driving home and when I'm bored, not on like the phone. I'll do it hands free. Everyone, don't worry. <laughs> no, that's that's good. I also like hands free car talking, so I appreciate it. Awesome. All right, my friend. Bye for now. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. <laughs>